John 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The word of the Lord. Well, it's a new year, and we have now been together for two years. I wore this shirt two years ago. This is my anniversary shirt. But I have to say that, oh, you guys are so kind. Hey, the nine o'clock did not do that. Oh, man. I have to say, though, that the love that you have shown me and my family is so humbling and so energizing. I wake up eager to do the work of the church. I want to keep growing in my walk with Jesus in part so that I can be a blessing to you. I love praying for you and with you. A number of you have commented to me on the prayer times that I do with you in the lobby after the services. But listen, those times of prayer bless me as much as they bless you. Church, we've been given a beautiful gospel ministry together. Each year, we get to serve and witness to thousands of people in the name of Jesus Christ. And I'm thrilled about the year ahead. Are you? Are you? Yeah, the Lord has been good to us. Now, let me share with you how our yearly preaching calendar works. Now, there will be some one-offs here and there, but by and large, Here's how it works. We begin in December with Advent, the coming of Jesus to earth to save us from our sins. But through Advent, we also look forward to his return because we know that he's coming again. Then between Advent and Easter, we're in one of the Gospels, looking at Jesus' words and his deeds, leading us into his death and resurrection at Easter. Following Easter, we spend some weeks in prayer because we want to be a praying church, a church that is growing in prayer. And we have Ezra 8 coming up in just four weeks, February 4th at 4 p.m. How easy is that to remember? 444. In four weeks, February 4th at 4 p.m. right here, Ezra 8, when we pray together as a church for the year ahead. Then following prayer... There's a couple of things in there, but then we go into a, an extended time, 16 weeks easily in the Old Testament so that we can learn the alphabet and the vocabulary and the grammar of the scriptures. When you're learning a new language, first you learn the alphabet and then you learn some vocab and then you learn how the grammar of the language works. I remember when I was learning English, I had been in this country for only a few weeks. And so I watched a lot of television. I watched a lot of Sesame Street and some of the news. That was my first exposure to American culture. Big Bird and New York homicides. Now, some of you are like, that explains a lot. It sure does. But, but when you're learning a new language... And some of you know this well, it feels to you like the native speakers of the language are going at 100 miles an hour. You cannot tell when one word ends and the next one starts. Can't. And so I remember I was just, I'd be watching television and the news anchor would be talking so fast. And I just remember thinking like, there's no way that I'm ever going to learn this language. It felt overwhelming. But then something great happened. I was watching the news and the anchor was speaking at his regular speed. And for the very first time, I understood. I could pick out the word about. 
He did not slow down for me or anything. He just said it and I understood it. And I was in my apartment all by myself, but I threw a little party. I was like, he said about, he said about, yay, he said about. I had no idea what he was talking about, but he said it and I was pumped. So that's why we spend a chunk of time in the Old Testament so that we can learn the alphabet and vocabulary and grammar and symbols and institutions and stories of Israel because that's the Bible that Jesus read and studied. And because just about every page of the New Testament draws from those symbols and institutions and stories. We're learning the language of God. So, Advent, and then Gospels, then Easter, then prayer, then the Old Testament, and then in the fall we'll be in another part of the New Testament other than the Gospels. And then December, we start again with Advent. And in this way, year by year, our knowledge of the entire Bible will be growing. So, it's January 7th, and we're going to be in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. We're going to be studying book two, the five chapters from book two that start at chapter, chapter 13. Now, the, the Gospel of John is divided in four parts. The prologue, which we studied during Advent. Then book one, which ends at chapter 12. Then book two, which starts at chapter 13 and goes through 20. And then an epilogue, chapter 21. Now, book two, or book one rather, covers the years of Jesus' public ministry. And John has arranged them around a few, a number of signs, works of power Jesus performed to display his glory, and also a number, uh, quite a bit of uh, teaching, and then the ensuing controversies from his teaching and works of power. So that's book one. But then, as soon as you start in book two, which is chapter 13, it feels like when you go to a Broadway play and act one is done and there's an intermission and then following the intermission and you get back, if you're able to make it back from the long bathroom lines in those theaters, you discover the lodge has changed for act two. The, the setting is different. Stage has changed. Time has passed. The focus, there's a new focus. And that's very much how it feels when you start chapter 13 of John. Think about it. In book one, the first 12 chapters of John, Jesus is out and about in broad daylight, moving and traveling to the north, middle, south of the land of Israel. He's teaching the crowds. He's performing works of power. But as soon as chapter 13 starts, it's nighttime. And Jesus is alone with his 12, the 12 apostles. And they're in an upper room. And he's preparing them for his departure. The setting is intimate. The words are charged with urgency and anticipation. Emotions run high. The first 12 chapters cover about two and a half years of Jesus' ministry. The next number of chapters, the next seven chapters, listen, cover just 24 hours. From the time he had the evening meal, the Passover meal with the 12, until he was buried just before Sabbath began on Friday evening. 
So do you see how John slows down the pace of his narrative until Jesus is not breathing anymore and his body lay in a cold, dark tomb? And you and I are going to be spending the next number of weeks pondering just the first few hours of his last 24 hours before he died. And I think there's a lesson here for us. Because I think that the Lord is inviting us to slow down and grow in our intimacy with the Savior. Listen, these chapters we're in are so intimate. It's why we're calling the series No Greater Love in the Upper Room with Jesus. Think about this. Jesus knows that he has three, maybe four hours left with his disciples before he's arrested and everything changes for them forever. He has just a handful of hours before he endures unspeakable suffering. His soul is already in anguish. Every word matters. And for us, it's January 7th. And I know how we tend to load up the new year with expectations and plans and goals and routines and travel and this and that. And no wonder our souls feel harassed. We do violence to our souls. We do violence to our souls. But can the next few weeks be different? Can we, the next few weeks, be mindful of the demands we place on our bodies, which includes our brains, and the effect that this has on our souls? The Lord is drawing us deeper in, or in keeping with the upper room image, he's inviting us higher up. So let's start with a foot washing gesture. Let's talk about the shock, the significance, the pattern of foot washing. So let's look at the shock of foot washing. Verse 1 of John 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So when chapter 12 closes, Jesus was in Jerusalem before Passover. As chapter 13 opens, it is time for Passover. It's the evening when he's having the meal with his disciples. And he knows that the hour has come. It's done. The hour has come for him to leave this world and go back to the Father. The focus here is on the love of Jesus. But it's his love both throughout his ministry as well as his love demonstrated in what he's about to do for them on the cross in just a few hours. That's why John says he loved them to the end. Now, in the Gospel of John, whenever Jesus performs a work of power, right after that, there's a discourse, teaching, where he explains the significance of that work of power. So, for example, Jesus feeds the 5,000, John chapter 6, and then we have the whole I am the bread of life discourse, 
right? Well, in these chapters, the pattern is reversed. And so these five chapters that we're going to be exploring have Jesus explaining to us the significance of his ultimate work of power, which is coming, which is what? His death and resurrection. You see, everything he says and does in these five chapters help us understand better the crucifixion and the resurrection. And the foot washing gesture is no different. It has implications for the cleansing that he brings to us by his death and for the way of life that he calls us to. So let's read on. Verse 2, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, we know that Jesus consistently shocked his disciples and the crowds by what he said, what he did, uh, by whom he associated with. And this foot washing gesture is no exception. So John here frames the meal and these statements about Jesus within a a, a quite foreboding atmosphere. Because he says he, 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 he gets going and then he says the devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. So for Jesus, this meal, and during this meal, the felt presence of the enemy within the intimacy of this meal with his most trusted friends and followers was strong. And what we read in verses 4 and 5 does not really follow. It's not what we would expect from what we read in verse 3. Because in verse 3, It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So pay attention to this. Jesus is fully aware of the kind of authority he has, the kind of authority the Lord has given, the Father has given him. The Father has put all things in his hands. All things, everything in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus. We can't even imagine the magnitude of his authority. But it's not just that. He also knew that he'd come from God and he was going back to God. He knew of the glory that he had with the Father before the world even began. And he knew that he was going back to that glory. Now, think about this. For 30 some years now, Jesus had lived on earth very much as a person from earth. With all the difficulty and misery that go along with life on earth. Can I see some hands if you know of the difficulty and misery? Oh wow. Only a couple of you. Amazing. But we know. We know that life on earth is hard and he knew this too. And so the glory that he had with the Father. Must have felt so and seemed so distant. But not anymore. It was so close. The time was here. He could taste it. And so with that kind of self-understanding that all things are under his authority and that he was going back to divine glory with the Father. With that kind of self-understanding, we read verse 4. So he got up from the meal, 
took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Is that what you'd expect following verse 3? No way. Listen, the disciples are shocked. That's plain as day from the things that Peter says in the next few verses. Why? Why are they shocked? Well, feet are kind of gross, right? I mean, even today, we mostly hide our feet in socks and shoes. Back then, people did a lot of walking on dirt roads. Many of those roads were shared with many animals, which means poop easily got on people's feet. Feet were dusty and dirty, crusty and stinky. Have you ever been to Mackinac Island? It's like, Feet were gross and therefore foot washing was the lowest of the low jobs. Some Jews did not even want Jewish slaves to have that job. Let Gentile slaves do that job. My family and I lived in India for a summer back in 2008. Um, it was great. And um, so we were there and we lived in an apartment. And every day or every other day or so, a maid came in to clean around the apartment. So she came in and she would clean. But pretty quickly we realized that she was not cleaning the toilet. And we didn't speak the same language. And so we were like, why is she not cleaning the toilet? And so it took us a little bit to find out that she thought the toilet was beneath her. So like, no, that, that's just not something that she would do. And we were like, oh, okay. Wow. But there's a well-known story about a rabbi who had walked all day home and he came home and his mother offered to wash his feet, but he would not let her. Again, because it's too the meaning of a job. Peers would not wash each other's feet. Now listen to this. There is no record in all of our sources, Jewish or Greco-Roman, of a superior ever washing the feet of an inferior. Not at all. Are you beginning to see why the disciples are shocked Let's talk about the significance of foot washing. In verse 6, he, Jesus, came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. Peter always says what the others are thinking. Right? 
And so as Jesus gets up from the meal and takes off his outer garment, wraps this towel around his waist, pours water into a basin and begins to wash their feet, you can just see Peter going, Lord, uh, what are you doing? Don't tell me that you're doing what I think you're doing. Don't tell me you're trying to wash my feet. To which Jesus replies, you do not realize what I'm doing now, but you will understand later, which tells us that the significance of the food washing cannot be understood except in light of the cross. This is about far more than feet. And so when he hears that, Peter says, no, you shall never wash my feet. He could not be more emphatic. The sense is, Absolutely not ever, as long as I'm alive, will you wash my feet. I mean, he's like, this is not happening. And so then Jesus, again, trying to take him deeper into the deeper dimension that he's addressing. He says to him, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Again, it's about more than feet. This is about the cross. This is about the cleansing of the soul. This is about what John the Baptist said in this gospel's first chapter. When he finds Jesus, he tells his disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's about that. And so Peter, still not understanding, says, Okay, Lord, in that case, then sure, my, my, my hands and my head as well kind of need some freshing it up. Now, isn't it going to be so fun to talk to Peter in heaven? It's like, Peter, thank you. Thank you for the countless humorous opportunities you created for millions of preachers. You are awesome. Peter is always not understanding, but speaking confidently in his lack of understanding. We are kind of like that. And so he keeps talking just about the physical body. Jesus is going to a different dimension, which he's constantly doing in this gospel. But Peter is taking him at the body, the, the, this world level. So he's like, okay, well, in that case, then sure, Lord, not just my feet then, please. My hands, here's my head, go ahead. But Peter's lack of understanding opens up a new, yet a new angle of application for what Jesus is doing. Because Jesus then says, um, those who have had a bath, need only to wash their feet. Their whole body's clean. And then he says, you are clean. This is so critical. I talked to people after the first service and this was just turning their wheels and it's so important. Jesus says, you are clean. Why? Because of the word that he has spoken to them and because of what he was about to do in less than 24 hours on the cross. You see, when you place your faith in Jesus, he cleanses you. He cleanses, he washes you clean. We sing about this all the time. By his blood, he cleanses us from all sin. It's a wonderful thing. But what do Christians do when they sin? What do we do? Are we stuck? No, we wash our feet. We wash our feet, meaning we turn to God and we confess and we trust that he will purify us from all unrighteousness, from all wickedness. That's what John says in the first chapter of the first letter. Do you see? And then 
Jesus says, you are clean, though not every one of you. And of course, he was referring to Judas, whom was going to betray him and whom he knew was not clean. Judas never received the word of Christ, even though he heard it many times. And so the significance of the food washing points in two directions. First, it cannot be understood apart from the cross. This whole event is about washing and cleaning, washing and cleaning. Those two words show up often in this account. You see, for us, the crucifixion has always had that meaning. The washing of our souls by the blood of Christ. But not one person, no one in the Roman world for all the centuries that crucifixion had been practiced up until that Thursday evening right here with Jesus and the disciples. No one would have ever associated crucifixion with washing at all. It was the opposite. Crucifixion was despicable. Crucifixion was defiling. Crucifixion was nothing but shame. How then could it now come to be about cleansing, about washing? Do you get this? Please do not miss this. This is incredible. In all the history, we're talking many centuries, the crucifixion had been practiced thousands and thousands of people that had been crucified. It was always the lowest of the low, the dirtiest of the dirty, the scum of the earth. That's who's in a crucifixion. And now it's going to be about cleansing and washing. That's what Jesus is doing. He's filling. He's filling up for them the meaning of what he's about to do the next day. It's the first direction. But the second direction, foot washing in contrast to a whole body bath, which is what he starts talking to Peter about, becomes a parable. A parable for the difference between being cleansed from our sin by the blood of Christ and the continual cleansing and purifying that he offers to us along our Christian life. That is so good. You see, when you come to Jesus, when you come to Jesus by faith, he cleanses you from all your sin. But when Christians sin, what do we do? When we sin, we're still clean. We still have a clean heart, a new heart. We're still his. All is not lost. What we have to do then, rather, is wash our feet. Just our feet. Our whole body has been cleansed. And that means we confess and we turn. We confess and we turn to God. You know, someone put it this way when I was talking to them in the lobby. And I was like, hey, that's really good. He said, when we come to Christ by faith, because of the cross, he cleanses us from sin. The washing of our feet cleanses us from sinning. That's good. And you need to know that. Because sometimes when we sin as Christians, we can feel like, what's the point? And it's like we throw the whole thing out. Jesus says, no, you are clean. You're mine by faith. You are mine. You are clean. But yes, your feet got dirty. You need to get them washed. Turn, confess, come to me. Isn't that awesome? I just think it's incredible. So let's talk about the pattern of foot washing. The pattern of foot washing. We go on. Verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. 
Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So now the Lord takes this foot washing gesture in yet another direction. Man, he could milk stuff so well. This is so good. He has finished washing their feet for all 12 of them. How long did that take him? One hour? A little longer? Can you imagine the impact this is having on them? They've never seen anything close to this. For a rabbi to be washing the feet, the stinky, dirty feet of all his disciples. Person by person, he's washing them. Toe by toe. Looking at them. Drying them off. Treating them tenderly. Twelve times. And then he finishes. He returns to his place at the table. And says to them, do you understand what I have done for you? Of course, the answer is no, they don't. They will. But they do not. Just yet. But what they're never going to forget is that he did this action. They're never going to forget that. And so he says to them, you call me teacher and Lord and rightly so because that is what I am. And so now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. Do you see what he's done? He's taken his action and made it a pattern. An example that all who follow him should imitate. He says, I have set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. So look at how masterful this foot washing gesture is. On the one hand, it allows Jesus to reconfigure, redraw, reimagine the meaning of crucifixion for them as washing something they've never seen before. No one could grasp this. They still didn't then, but they would come to in time. Oh, yes, they did. But on the other hand, foot washing being so menial, so lowly, so shocking, and therefore so unforgettable, the memory of his doing this for them would never leave them. The memory of their master bowing so low to serve them would never leave them. And you see, he turns that into a pattern because the crucifixion, they could never repeat. That was one and done. Only Jesus could do that. But they could bow as low as their master did to serve one another. No servant is greater than his master, he says. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Church, cleansed hearts bow low. Cleansed hearts bow low. Listen, this is one of the hardest lessons in true Christianity. It's one of the hardest we are so much like Peter. Remember, when Jesus starts doing this, Peter starts freaking out. He's like, absolutely not ever, as long as I'm alive, shall you wash my feet. 
He's like, this is not happening. Why? Why was that gesture so unthinkable for Peter? Now we can say, well, well, because culturally, no rabbi, no superior had ever washed the feet of a disciple or a servant. Okay, true. But then why? Why was that culturally the case? Why is it that in none of our sources that we have, Jewish or Greco-Roman, not once do we have a superior washing the feet of an inferior? Why is that the case? Why was this so unacceptable to Peter? Because if the master washes the feet of his servant, then that means that no job is too low for them. That's what it means. And that was something that Peter did not want to consider. And it's something that we do not like. Cleansed hearts bow low. We like the cleansed part. We like that. We want to be cleansed. We want new lives. We want to be transformed. Yes, we do not like the bow low part. And yet they go together. Cleansed hearts bow low. I've told you before of the time when Anne and I, our family, you know, we, we left our high paying job at the engineering firm to go back into full-time ministry. And I was really excited about this because finally I was like, going to be able to go and study full-time, study theology and the Bible. And so I was thrilled about this, but it was a sacrifice. We were making some serious sacrifices. And so, yes, and so we, we took our whole family. We moved to Maryland. Anna was about to give birth to our third child. And uh, while there, I was able to study Greek and church history and hermeneutics and philosophy and systematic theology and on and on. And I was loving it. It was so great. And I gave my full attention to this and I did well and I was excited to come back to my home church and be a blessing to them with my new found knowledge. Now the church that we were going back to in Florida, our home church was a church plant. So it was small and there were only three of us on staff. And, um, and I remember like right after we came back a couple of weeks later or so, a few weeks later, uh, there was an event that we had for the men. And so, um, and so the senior pastor was uh, teaching that day. He was going to teach. And then the other pastor was going to lead worship. And so that left me. And so the senior pastor said, John, how about if you're in charge of serving pizza? And, and that was hard. <laughs> The Peter in me struggled. No, no, no. The John. The John in me struggled. I mean, I had intense feelings about this. I had thoughts. I was like, hold on a minute. Did I leave my high-paying job to come serve pizza to these stinky guys? Like, did I go and just work so hard to learn Greek so I could come and serve pizza? I could have done that without doing any of this. Remember the toilet? Remember the maid in India who thought the toilet was beneath her? Serving pizza at that point was my toilet. Oh yeah, it felt very much like that. And then I was so ashamed of all these thoughts and feelings. I was like, ah, 
what a horrible, wretched sinner I am. Like what? Have I learned nothing? And so I had to repent. I had to wash my feet and go to the Lord. And I went to my senior pastor and confessed these thoughts and feelings. And he was so gracious. But the Lord grew me through that experience. And really through those years. But church, we, we don't like it. Cleanse hearts, bow low, but we don't like it. And there's so many applications of this. People are sharing some of their own stories out there in the lobby. And it was wonderful to hear. I know you have your own, but we don't like it. I'll give you just one application that's very pertinent to our life together. Because the Lord is doing amazing things in our midst. But that is our kids' ministry. Now, this is a, an issue. Not, this is not an Oak Point only issue. I've seen this in every church that I've been a part of. And that is that we have more children than we have people going into the classrooms on Sunday to love them, to teaching about Jesus and such. But we just, we don't like it. It's hard to get the people we need. We have close to 400,000 people. That's not true, 400,000. Where did that come from? It feels like that. Uh, 400 children every Sunday in those classrooms. These are your children. These are our children. It's not like we went to a church down the street and said, hey, do you have 400 kids you want us to teach on Sunday mornings? Because we will. No, these are our children and we can't find enough people to go in there to teach them. And we complain about how our culture is treating kids today and what they're learning, what they're learning in the schools, what they're learning on social media, this and that. We, we're appalled. But we won't go teach them. When they are so moldable and your presence matters and makes such a difference. And I've heard all the excuses. I've made them myself. Older people are like, oh, no, I'm too tired for that. No way can I do that. I paid my dues. I did that a long time ago. That should be for the younger people. But the younger people feel like, I'm with young kids all week long. I can't. Please. You don't understand. Listen, we've all been there. But these are our kids. Here's the question. Is kids ministry your toilet? Now listen, some of you are champions over there. You know who you are. And your house in heaven is going to be bigger. Because you just serve these kids so well. But church, could this be the year? And from here on out, please, please, let's do work with the Lord on this. We're not, we don't have a sign up for anything right now. I'm just, but this is a big deal though. Could this be the year when we have an overabundance, overabundance of people going into those classrooms to pour the love of Christ into your, our own children? Why? Because cleansed hearts bow low. Think about this. Listen, Jesus is not making us into nice people. He's turning us into servants. And no task is too low for a servant of the one who washed dirty, dusty, crusty, stinky feet. No task is too low for a servant of the one who went through the horrors of the cross to wash us clean. And so church, right now, as we go to the Lord's table, slow down. Slow down 
and your mind and your soul and reflect on the cleansing that he brings to you by his death on the cross and ask him to wash your feet. Ask him to wash any part of you that has become defiled by sin. He promises to do this. You're still his child. He loves you. But you must be purified. 1 John 1, listen to these words. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from what? All unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Church, God is faithful. He is just. He will forgive us our sins. Let us confess to him our pride, our lust, our greed. So take a few moments just now. Close your eyes if it'll help you. And reflect on the Lord's love for you as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper.